Now, in the first chapter of Esther, we were presented a perhaps unusual picture concerning the Persian Empire, one that appears to be almost a laughable empire in that Xerxes and his empire attempt to look all-powerful, almighty, filled with riches and doing whatever it wants, and yet God is revealing the flaws of this kingdom. We see an empire that is so fearful that a woman, Vashti, could destroy everything about the kingdom because she simply told the king no. And so the king doesn't know what to do about her queen because she won't do what he says. And the whole thing has set up this, this picture that the empires of the world are nothing before God. But in seeing that, that doesn't mean that the empires of the world are powerless. And as much as chapter 1 has uh, vivid imagery in which you can't help but see irony through and through and, and pictures that have intended humor, chapter 2 is perhaps one of the darkest chapters uh, that is given to us. And that's why the title of the lesson is essentially Life in the Worst of Times. We have a saying uh, in our lives that things went from bad to worse or out of the frying pan and into the fire and things like that. Uh, and that is absolutely the essence of what unfolds in this second chapter, Esther chapter 2. And you will notice in verse 1, it just says, after these things, an amount of time goes by. Uh, when we see in chapter 2, verse 16, that a few years have gone by. And so it appears that now Xerxes has suffered his humiliating defeat against the Greeks and has returned back to his palace. And we are told there in chapter 2 and verse 1 that the anger of King Ahasuerus or Xerxes in Greek had abated. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And I don't think the point is, oh, I totally forgot about what I had done with that. The same way that the scriptures speak of God remembering something is not a total forgetfulness. But rather now you have a picture of a regret is that he has come back and oh yeah, I forgot about that whole interplay that she's not here anymore. And you'll notice that the king's young men have the perfect solution in verse two. They say to him, well, let the beautiful virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let the cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. And this then pleased the king and he did so. And so the picture then is certainly terrifying is that, well, here's the solution. What we will do is we will gather up all the beautiful young virgins that are in the empire and then you will be able to have your pick and whichever one that you are the most pleased with, then you will go ahead and appoint that one to be queen. And so so that is the setup of the things that are about to unfold. But before the text wants to tell us 
how this is all going to unravel and fall apart, we begin to be introduced to two important characters, two important people in our account that's given to us. The first one is given to us in verse 5, that we have a Jew in Susa, the citadel, and his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is not a Jewish name. That's a Babylonian name that has reference to the Babylonian god Marduk. You might remember that we know of various people of God and Jewish people who have Babylonian names recorded for us. You know three of them quite famously. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the names they were given by their parents, but those were Babylonian names. You might also remember, though we remember the name David, His name in Babylon is Belteshazzar. And so having a Babylonian name is not unusual. And so this is his Babylonian name. And we are told something particularly interesting in verse 5. And we're told that he is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had carried away. That is not useless throwaway genealogical information. This is going to come back into play in a very important way in this book. Here's what you need to remember of that genealogy. He's a Benjamite and has ancestry to Saul. Uh, That's a very important thing to note about Mordecai. His lineage traces back to Saul. You might remember Saul's father is also of uh, Kish. And so here we have the same connection point being given back. And then finally we are told about him that this family then was a part of the Babylonian exile that had taken place. And so now we have Mordecai, and here he is living in Susa, and that is the one of the capitals of Persia. The text then wants to tell us somebody else. In verse 7 we're told that Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah. I I love that name. That that is a, a, a beautiful name, but you don't know her by that name. Hadassah is the Jewish name that is that that she possesses but the name that you know of her is Esther and that is a Persian name and that name references to Ishtar the Persian gods as well again the changing of the names while being in a foreign land and i want you to listen to her story in verse 7 says that the da- she here bring up Hadassah as Esther the daughter of his uncle For she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so what I want you to see is right out of the gate, we are presented with some interesting background information about Esther. Esther has not lived a joyful, pleasant, comfortable life. Her parents, we don't know how and we don't know why, but her parents somewhere along the way die. And we see that it is Mordecai, her cousin then, that is going to be raising her. And I think that's an interesting picture as you begin to put together this image of Esther is that Esther has had a tough beginning. Here is this young woman. Uh, and losing her parents and being in Persia, uh, a lot of difficulties to be faced in terms of that. And Mordecai is 
taken on his shoulders the desire to go ahead and be the guardian for her and to take care of her and make sure that all has gone well for her. And things then go from bad to worse with that. Verse 7, when it says that she is beautiful and lovely to look look at, is not a throwaway sentence or just simply noting information about her. The reason why that needs to be brought up is because she's going to be collected uh, in this empire-wide sweep of the beautiful young virgins. She then being beautiful and young and a virgin is collected up by the empire as well and so that's what then ultimately is is happening to her and what she's going to endure is she has been taken into the king's palace along with many of the young women now i don't know of a better way to ultimately lay out what's happening here except to be stating here's what's happening here uh, because this is not a, a happy scene. This is not something that we go, oh, yay, how, how wonderful, that we would have the right picture in our mind. So here is this woman, and you think of Esther, don't think of her as an old lady or some mature woman. She's a young woman, you know, likely upper teenage years. And here she is in Persia, and she has been taken away from her guardian, Mordecai, as this... uh, collection of women takes place throughout the empire to see who is going to be the next queen. She is thrown into the king's harem and there is nothing about this account as it unfolds that you are to read this and go, wow, this is really great for Esther. This is not a Cinderella story. Uh, This is not rags to riches story. It's not a romantic story. It's not Song of Solomon of, you know, true love coming together or anything like that. This is a king who is looking for a queen and gathering all these beautiful women throughout the empire. The reason why it's not a Cinderella story and it's not a rags to riches story or anything like that. We'll look at verse 14 in a minute. But it gives you a clue along with ancient Near Eastern pictures that are given to us is these women who are collected up are never going to go home. Not one of them. Uh, This isn't, hey, who wants to be queen? And okay, let's see who the, the king loves and everybody else can go back to life the way that it was. They're collected up into this harem, their harem of all the young, the young women here, these, these virgin women. And after these opportunities pass of getting to know the king, they're going to be counted among the class of the concubines and remain then in the palace for the rest of their days. Now, there is nothing here to go, and then they can just go back home and carry on the, the way that, that they were before. Uh, you'll notice that there at the end of verse 14, it, it subtly points out that after they see the king, uh, then they go back to a second harem who's in charge of the concubines. You now go to the other pool uh, of women. And so nobody's going home after this. This is not a positive experience that is happening at this moment. Essentially, a concubine in those days was a second-class wife. The husband had exclusive sexual rights to her, but no benefits of being an actual wife. They could be divorced without penalty. Children could be cast out without support. There's really only one positive takeaway for any of these women who will now become 
concubines in the harem of the king. And that is, they will have a roof over their head and meals will be given to them and whatever amenities they need to live the rest of their days in the palace. That's the lot of their life. That's just what happened to Esther and to many of the other women in the empire. And before you feel like, wow, that's really rough, I just point out to the other side of the coin. We have the King Xerxes did this also every year to the the young boys. We have historically, he would take 500 young boys every year, castrate them and make him eunuchs within his Persian court. We talked on Wednesday night, the kind of guy you're dealing with. And that's an important background to have. There's nothing good about Xerxes and, oh, yay, we get to be with him. Isn't that going to be wonderful and great? Uh, This is a a terrible scene that's unfolding here and a terrible picture of what is happening. And ultimately, the image of chapter 2 as the description continues to unfold is that life in the empire, life within the Persian empire is oppressive. It is difficult. And I want you just to think about Esther's life is pictured as going from bad to worse. You are in Persia. Your parents are dead. Mordecai is the one who is taking care of you. You have been ripped away from him now to spend the rest of your life in the palace as a concubine unless you win the favor of the king and become queen. That is the setup for the life of Esther at this point. Now, I think verses 10 and 11 show us the issue at hand and the difficulties for her as well. You'll notice in verse 10, it tells us Esther had not made known uh, her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. You'll notice that Mordecai realizes the difficulty of her situation and, and says, you need to keep your background on the down low as you are taken into the empire And the essence of that difficulty is observed in verse 11. Every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The reason why I underscore that is if this is a, yay, she's, this is a great thing that's happened to her. You don't have Mordecai then every day checking in, wanting to know how are things going for her? Uh, What is happening to her? now Uh, a a very difficult scene it also clues us in on one other thing that's important Mordecai is a little bit of a somebody because he's able to gain this information he's able to go to the gates of the court of the harem that's there and find out how she's doing and so Mordecai doesn't live in the suburbs of Susa and he has no connections or information or anything like that he has a a role within the court and that will come into play in later chapters but to see that here is that he's very concerned for her bad things are happening to Esther and things that are ultimately going from bad to worse and so this is the situation that is that was presented to us and i think it's worth just stopping here for a moment and just imagine for a minute what Esther would maybe be thinking if you were to put yourself in her shoes right at that point in time you know what what does this look like And I think as we've talked about of what the book is ultimately asking and trying to answer, who would not in this circumstance 
and be asking a simple question like, you know, where's God? Why is this all happening to me? And I think, could life get any worse? I mean, in your short life, parents are dead, collected by a tyrannical king like like Xerxes, and your best case scenario is to be his queen, and your worst case scenario and most likely scenario is to be a concubine the rest of your days in the palace. That's, that's what's given to her at this moment. And what is really interesting is all of these details are given that are just painting negative picture upon negative picture is that there is this one subtle glimmer, faint hope. And you'll notice it's stated there in in verse 9. And it says there in verse 9, And the young woman pleased him, and that's speaking back to verse 8 of the, the man who is in charge and put in the cut, who's in charge of the uh, harem there, of these young women who've been collected. The young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. I want you to see there's this little subtlety that's given is that even in these dire and dark circumstances, she's gaining favor. There's a little bit of hope. She's rising up in the ranks. The picture of gaining favor in difficult circumstances should immediately start ringing bells about some some characters, some people that you read about in the scriptures. Because what you're going to see with Esther has a very similar trajectory to the life of Joseph. If you think about Joseph... His young life, teenage area age as well, and all of his brothers are against it, and he goes through horrific circumstances. Brothers want to kill him, and he's sold off into slavery, and you would think that it couldn't get any worse as here he is serving as a slave within Potter's first house. But remember, there's this little glimmer of hope. Joseph is put in charge of the house. But then that goes bad. And so then he's thrown into prison. But remember in Egypt, then he starts gaining favor within the prison. And so here we are in the life of Esther and you are reading in chapter two. This is horrible. Your parents are dead. The one who is your guardian, who's been caring for you, taking care of you. You're ripped away from him. You're thrown into this harem. And there's this one little statement of hope, but she's gaining favor in the court. She's gaining favor among the people that even with these difficult circumstances, we're going to begin to watch the quiet hand of God begin to move in this young woman's life. But let's push on a little bit more, because if it's from bad for worse, can I call the rest of these verses a disgusting empire, a disgusting empire? Verses 12 through 14 reveal to us really 
the, the disgusting situation that is ultimately being portrayed. We're told in verse 12 that all of these young women that have been collected from the empire are now going to be given a number of months to be able to beautify themselves, prepare themselves to be able to go uh, meet the king. And unfortunately, the scene that is presented to us is not that, well, what's going to happen is the king is going to get to know each woman and they're going to go out on a number of dates and after they go out on a number of dates and he gets to know each one of them, he's going to pick them for their personality and it's going to be happily ever after. If you look at verse 14. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of uh, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. That's the scene of what's happening. That is what is being portrayed for these women is you have one night with the king and based on that one night, one of these women is going to be selected. They do not return to the harem of the, the virgin women. They're put in the harem of the concubines. And they are never going to see the king again. Unless the king delights in her. And calls for her to come back. And so what I want us to see yet again is, that's why I just call this a disgusting empire. You are getting layers upon layers of despicable and disgusting sinning that is going on that these women are being thrown into. And her ultimate only hope then as this story begins to unfold is to please the king and become the next queen. And even through this disgusting situation I want you to notice something amazing that in verse 15 we are told as she comes back now to this second group of women it says at the end of verse 15 now Esther was winning favor in all of the eyes in the eyes of all who saw her and so here again is the subtle little hope is that even in all these disgusting pictures that are given and the people that are surrounding her, she's gaining favor. And amazingly, amazingly, we are told in verse 16, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vasti and the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants it was Esther's feast he grant also granted the remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity I want you to see a similar picture of the rising of Esther. She's gaining favor first in the court. Then she gains favor as she moves into the second court of the women. And finally, she is able to gain grace and favor in the sight of the king. And perhaps the most stunning words of verse 17 is it says that the king loved her and chose her and made her queen. 
Now, before we can go on with the rest of the story, which we will look at in in future weeks, I think it's important that we take a step back and just consider some of the messages of what is happening through these despicable and horrible circumstances. And I think overall, one of the things that you're beginning to see right out of the gate is that God is able to raise up Esther so that she can be queen to carry out God's plan. One of the things that's amazing about this is one of the things that God shows us over and over again is how he is able to work in the lives of his people and his creation. That God is able to take horrifying circumstances that happen to us and still be able to accomplish his will. One of the things that I think is so interesting about chapter 2 is that you will notice everything happens to Esther. This is not her with a, you know, here's the outcome of bad decisions, you know. It never lays it out like that. Well, she was a terrible person making really bad decisions, and that's why all these bad things happen to her. We often want to frame the world in that light. Now, the reason why that happened to you is because you did these really bad things. Notice chapter 2 has been just simply, life is happening to her. She has lost her parents. She's ripped away from Mordecai. She's thrown into the court. It's all just happening to her. And yet, in spite of all of that, we're able to see that God can still be at work in some of the most horrifying circumstances. In all of her loss and in all that she's going through and all that she's being subjected to, we can see God still at work. I am amazed at how many times the people that we read about, how frequently it happens where God wants us to see these people as life happening to them. Bad circumstances, terrible situations, horrifying events. And God will be with those people and still work through those circumstances. And that is ultimately what is at play here, is that who would not have blamed Esther if she thought, well, God doesn't care and has abandoned me, that now I'm in this situation. I mean, who would not sit back and think that nothing good could possibly come from what has happened? Here we are as the readers, and we are um, almost cheating, if you will, because we know where all this is going. We, we know there's going to be this, this important outcome of rescue and salvation later ahead. But put yourself in the moment and you would think, how could anything possibly good come out of this? That life has gone from bad to worse to worse to despicable. It is a terrible situation. How could God be at work? How could God be with me? And how could God accomplish any good from these circumstances? I think it would be fair to feel that way. And what I want us to see is that you can go through loss like Esther. You can be subjected to the actions of wicked people. And that doesn't mean God has left you. You can go through terrible things. And that doesn't mean that God has 
left you, that God is able to still change our lives dramatically and work great things, even when we are in times of despair. Which leads, I think, to one of the really important big things that is being put forward in this chapter and for this book is that the people of God are always going to live at the mercy of an ungodly empire under ungodly rulers who do ungodly things to the detriment of his people. That's just what the scriptures are filled with. And that truth is resounding here. That being the people of God does not mean that living in the empire is going to be easy. Being the people of God does not mean that we are going to live under a godly empire with a godly ruler who does godly things. We are reading a despicable empire. We are reading the horrors of the empire. And being the people of God doesn't mean that it's going to be good for us and that we're going to all have that kind of protection. In fact, I hope that you notice what is fascinating here is that Esther's not protected from the horrors of the empire and the king and the wicked people that are involved. And we are not either. And it is, I believe, fair to say it's the worst of times for her. She's experiencing life at the worst. And yet God is able to be with you. Even in the worst of circumstances. God is able to still be with you in the most horrifying of circumstances. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. I want you to hear how the Apostle Paul words this and how he praises God as we bring these ideas to a close. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he opens his second letter to the Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here's what I want you to think about this passage. Paul praises God not because God keeps us away from tribulations, afflictions, and horrible events. But because of the comfort God gives through the suffering. I think that's probably one of the greatest challenges as the people of God. Because as the people of God, we look to God and say, you should keep all bad things from happening to us. We love you, we serve you, and so keep all those bad things away from us. And what you see over and over again is that's not how God operates with his people. Rather than saying, I'm not going to allow any bad things to ever happen to you, what God says is that even in your darkest hour and even in your most difficult times, that God is a God of comfort and that we would look to God that he is there for us in the worst of times. 
That is the answer that God gives to us, is to look to Him that He is the help that we need, and that just because we go through these difficulties and have these dark times does not mean that there is no light ahead, and it certainly does not mean that God is not with us. We're able to cheat the book, and we know what God is going to accomplish, but when you're standing there in the moment... And you're in the Esther 2 moment. And you don't know what's going to happen in Esther 8 and Esther 9 and Esther 10. You're just in Esther 2. You have to be able to put your hope in God. And be able to stand there and know, even through these difficult times, and even through these afflictions, even through the suffering, and even through the evil that's experienced, God is absolutely still with you. That God doesn't leave you. And that he can still accomplish amazing things in your life in spite of those circumstances. If I were to take my guess, you can probably look back in your life, if you've lived life long enough, you can look back in your life And you can think back to the moments in your life when things look the darkest. And you didn't know how life was going to go. And you didn't know what direction was going to happen. And it seemed like nothing good could possibly happen. There's absolutely no light, no hope, and no way. And now you can look back and go... It wasn't pleasant. But I see the change of course that God caused. And I see where there was hope now. And I see the light that is able for me to put my hands around. I've told you many times about this chain of events in my life that I always stand back and I'm just amazed by. That I look back at my life and I have parents who divorce when I'm young and it makes life in high school and early college just absolute misery so you move to the other side of the country because you want to get away from it all and you never want to go back home ever again you just kind of go I'm going to start starting life all over and through a variety of events because you don't stay on one coast you move to another coast you then end up marrying the love of your life you then you end up going into a profession that you had no chance of ever doing in your life because you were going to be an accountant and never do something like this, which is only possible because of the events that happened that were so traumatic and so painful in your childhood. And there's so many things that happen to us where you stand right here and you go, I wouldn't be right here if it hadn't been for all that mess. I, I would, it all happened to you. Life happened to you. But you're here because of it. And you're probably better off for it. That's where she's at. That's where she's at at this moment. His life has happened to her. It doesn't mean God's abandoned you. It doesn't mean that God is not going to work great things for you in the future. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Lord, it is so hard. It is so hard when life comes at us the way that it does. We go through things, Lord, that's so unfair. Things that are not our fault. 
we experience the consequences of other people's sins. And we have our life just simply flipped upside down so many times. God, I pray that we would always in those times of difficulty, times when it seems like there's no light, that we would always see and always know that you're there, that you haven't left us, that you can help us, and that we need to see you as the God of all comfort. Lord, we don't know and we certainly often don't understand why we experience the things that we do in this life. But Lord, we pray for a greater faith that we would trust that you are working through our difficulties, working through the various things that happen in our lives so that you would be glorified and that your will would be accomplished. So Lord, help us to trust you. Give us a greater faith. And when we feel beaten down, Lord, pick us up. Give us the encouragement and the comfort that we need. And be the God of comfort that you say that you are to us as we seek you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are going to sing an invitation song. Come to God. God is the one who can help you. No matter your difficulty, no matter your pain, God is the one who's the God of all comfort who can help you through any circumstance and any difficulty. Would you put your trust in him, turn away from your sins, and follow him with all of your heart? If we can help you in any way, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?